The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verse 35. And Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the Son of David? And we begin really at this point. Our subject is being conformed to Christ. And as we go through these verses to the end of the chapter, they really I will be trying to show that in them uh, is a threefold exhortation to Christ's people, to Christ's disciples. Though it may not at face value appear as though this is the case, this is a passage for us. And I think I'll really begin down in verse 38 for the sake of covering the ground in the short time available to us. And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces. Our first heading will be this. For advance in communion with Christ, Christ must be recognized. Of course, it's the first step in seeking salvation also. Christ must be recognized. Here was the great failing of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. They did not recognize who he was. They did not understand that he was the eternal Son of God incarnate. Back there in verse 35, we considered this. How say the scribes that Christ is the Son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, and Psalm 110 is quoted, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. And they were confounded by that, completely confused by that. Why, uh, he was really asking them their view of he himself. What do you think of Christ? What do you make of Christ? But they wouldn't have answered that. Not for one moment did they believe that Christ was Messiah, the expected Messiah of his people. No, they answered theoretically, well, Christ, of course, they said, is the son of David. It's put at slightly greater length in the Gospel of Matthew. He is the son of David. And they were giving away the fact that the Messiah they expected, great as they expected him to be, presumably they might have thought born of a king or a ruler or at least a priest, great personality as he would turn out to be with great power, delivering them from the Roman authority, restoring the nation and its fortunes in the world, making it a a great nation, Oh, he'd be great, but for all that, they were giving away the fact that they expected a man. A great man, but a man. He is the son of David. They'd lost the prophecies. The clergy of the day in the Jewish church, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, they're all listening to this. It says only the scribes in Mark's gospel. It adds the others in Matthew and Luke 
all the establishment of the church, as it were, were listening to him. And they were all represented in this reply by our great Messiah will be the son of David. Well then, Christ says to them, what about Psalm 110? But that's only an example. It isn't alone. Where David calls him Lord. And there is a distinction. It's plain in the quotation. Between Lord in capital letters, Jehovah, our pronunciation of the initials of the divine name, Almighty God, standing here, no doubt, for the Father. And then Lord, upper and lower case letters, translating a word which means ruler, supreme ruler, a distinction between the Father and the Son in the Godhead. How is it that the Father, as it were, speaks to the Son? And David speaks to the Son also and calls him Lord. Messiah is Lord. And he challenges them. They're confused. We don't consider that. We've never thought of that. But he's not only a man that we're to expect, but the Son of God. And then they're in a quandary, some of them, because they're already charging Christ with blasphemy. This one who many think is Messiah, who works mighty miracles, who teaches as no other man teaches, who has such character and authority, this amazing, extraordinary, wonderful teacher and prophet and healer, And he calls himself the son of man and in many different ways the son of God. And what he says from our own prophets and from David is that Messiah will be divine, the son of God as well as the son of man. This hit them. Some of them, well most of them, hardened their hearts. They rejected it. They wouldn't receive it. And their failure to recognize Christ as God and man was their undoing and their loss, their eternal loss. It's the first step in salvation. By the Holy Spirit, our eyes are opened and we see that Christ is God, the Son of God who came to redeem. And we hold him in awe and reverence And we have a new view. And this realization dawns on our minds, grows in our hearts. It's the first step of salvation. It'll bring us to our knees. It'll bring us under conviction of sin. It'll bring us into a realization of our need of him. And we'll run to him and yield to him. But in the walk of righteousness for God's people, it remains essential to have high in our minds and on our hearts an appreciation of Christ and his wonder and who he is and his loving kindness and his power and his greatness and his glory. And if we're children of God and we're converted to him, one day we shall see him. We shall see him if we die before his return. 
We shall see him, of course, if we're alive at his return. And we will be overwhelmed. I never realized, we'll say, his majesty and his glory. When we see the glorified Lord, when we see the God and the man, we should just be amazed and overwhelmed. And if it were possible, but happily it may not be possible, we will be deeply ashamed that we as Christians treated him so lightly and prayed to him so almost flippantly at times. When we see his majesty and glory and greatness and unchangeable eternity, these things are just beyond our comprehension at the moment. But to do our best to keep him in view, our divine Lord, is the first thing in being closer to him and conform to him and like him. David calleth him Lord, and so must we. But as I originally said, I must come down to verse 38, and this will be a second heading, and it is this. Self-love must be executed mortified, got rid of. He said unto them in his doctrine, beware of the scribes. Now all the people are gathered. We learn that in Matthew's Gospel. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, this uh, denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees is of much greater length. The whole discourse is related Everything that he said. Mark summarizes it considerably. We're not surprised he does. After all, the Gospel of Mark is really an evangelistic tract. That is what distinguishes it among the Gospels. It is briefer in many respects because it is a tract for the unsaved, for the unconverted. Therefore, the extended material against the scribes and the Pharisees exposing their self-love and self-seeking and their hypocrisy is largely omitted from the Gospel of Mark. That isn't relevant so much for the winning of souls. It is relevant for believers. Don't read this passage even in the shorter form in Mark's Gospel as just a denunciation of the clergy of the times. Oh, they were terrible people, weren't they? When we read what Christ has to say about them. See this in a different light. Christ is instructing chiefly the disciples. Don't let the church of Jesus Christ ever resemble this. Don't let my heart we'll say it of ourselves, ever resemble that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Apply this to us and to our church and to ourselves. It's what God feels about the self-seeking and the self-love and the self-advertisement of the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 38, he said unto them in his doctrine, 
Beware. Today we might say, guard against. Be vigilant. Watch out. Guard carefully against the encroachment of this. Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing. The long clothing probably refers to the extended hems that they would put on their garments to show their office and their station and their piety, supposedly. And love salutations in the marketplaces. They love to be greeted as superior. And the chief seats, verse 39, in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feasts. Appearances to be seen. It's all pride and flesh to be applauded. I was saying only last week, applause in the house of God is appalling. It's profane. It's an abomination that a preacher, a mere preacher, should ever be applauded. A performer who plays an instrument or sings a spiritual song should be applauded. That is appalling. Have they never read the scriptures? Isn't that utterly scribal in its character? Isn't that pandering to self-seeking? And human applause and love, a love of these things? God will have no rivals. This is all for the Lord. Our attention is directed to him. The chief seats in the synagogues, uppermost rooms at feasts. This is terrible, friends, what's going on today. People dressing and behaving and acting in church to attract attention and notice and applause and so on. Our praise is simple. Hopefully it's full-hearted and sincere with the whole of ourselves. We have a choir. Everyone is in it. No worship by proxy. Everyone together. That's the scriptures. That's the New Testament. New Testament, not an instrument in sight. We believe God trusts us with an instrument. It disciplines us. It helps us. It holds us together. It may even suggest the mood and the tone of love and worship and triumph and adoration, of regret and serious seeking. Yes, it may help in these things. It must never dominate. It must never perform. It must never take over. It must never rival what can be said and thought. We never forget that in the scripture, worship is words. Worship is words. Whether sung, 
whether said, whether thought, worship is words. It's not music. Oh, we will worship with this melody. You can't worship with a melody. It isn't words. You can't worship with an instrument. It isn't words. What's the place of an instrument? Well, it's very similar to the place of a radiator on the wall. Without the radiator, in winter time, even here, let alone some countries, it's very difficult to worship. Your very jaws will freeze together. No, it helps. It's a help. The instrument is a help. Remember the words of old John Wycliffe? If I like the tune over much, I like not the tune. That's rich. Worship. The music must never eclipse the worship. It can help it. Must anyway enough of that. No appearances, no pride, no flesh, no applause, no nonsense. We are happy in the Lord. I tell people this endlessly. Before the Reformation, it was all Roman Catholic theatre. The whole thing was a performance. All different aids were employed. Soaring, knaves, candles, incense, stained glass, altars, different procedures, priestly garments, the lot. Everything was designed to make an impact on the senses because Rome believed you capture the senses, you can float in your dogma and your teaching. Senses first. Intelligent teaching afterwards. Then came the reformers. And the first thing they did was throw out all the theatre. Theatre is out. In is the word of God. It's not an attack upon the senses. It's the word. And it impacts the mind. The mind is the palace of understanding. The palace of faith. And because we understand the teaching. And it's precious to us. And by the Spirit it convicts us and moves us. We're lifted up and our hearts, our feelings, which is a system of response, joins in. Mind first, feelings second. That was the Reformation. But now, many Bible-believing Christians even have gone back to the philosophy of Rome. They've turned it all round again. No, no, they say. Wall-to-wall music, rhythm, beat, borrow from the world in order to stir people up. Senses, attack on the senses first. And then we'll float in some truths. Wrong way round. Entirely wrong. The word first and foremost. Everything else that we're permitted is secondary to that. But here the scribes and the Pharisees, well, they love the chief seats and it's all for them and the Church of Jesus Christ 
must be nothing like that. And in our individual lives, the mortification of self, self-love, desire for notice, desire to be special, desire to be different. When I was uh, uh, first at the tabernacle, over 50 years ago, uh, a fellow preacher uh, said to me some words which really shook me, and they do almost to this day. And he wasn't a bad man. He loved the Lord. He preached well. He retired only in recent years from preaching, from a life of service. But this is something that at that time he had entirely wrong. He said to me, look, in central London there, don't get riveted to central London. Go about a bit. Accept every invitation to be a visiting preacher and a weeknight preacher all over the country as much as you can. And this was his reason. These were the terrible words. You've got to get your name out there. That was, to me, a real shock. And we had quite a solemn talk after that at the time. Get your name out there? What's that got to do with the service of Christ? Christ's name is the only name that matters. And we've got to tell our souls that constantly. Christ is all. He is all that matters. It isn't self-advertisement. It isn't self-seeking. It isn't reputation, personal reputation. It isn't to be sought after and pursued. Nothing like that. Christ is all. That's the only way for all of us. Do you get the temptation? The devil comes knocking at the door of your mind. Be the best Sunday school teacher in the sense of the most noticeably effective one who people will look up to and admire. Crush the thought at once. Pray against it. Get rid of it. There's no advance in communion with Christ if we allow in self-advertisement, self-praise, self-flattery. Self has got to go. That is really the message of the denunciation of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. Let it not be in our church. But then a final section in our passage, verse 41, and Jesus sat over against the treasury. He's in the court of women. It was for men as well as women, but it was the one from which the women were not excluded. And against its long wall and colonnade were the collection chests of the treasury. At least a dozen, some say 13, some authorities say even more. But they were very large and they had huge trumpet-shaped horns, as it were, on them, into which a long line of donors constantly cast coins and certain items also. But the coins are in view here. 
Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. He saw it. And verse 42, And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. Well, our King James Version has tried to make it easy for us, but it's a translation of its time here. And what she cast in was two of the very thinnest copper coins, which together amount to only a fraction of a denarius. She was very poor. And he called unto him his disciples. You could pause even there. The, uh, the Greek has these coins very precisely described. It's marvellous what the Saviour could see. Because he was God, he could see exactly what she was contributing. He could see exactly her circumstances. He knew she was a widow. He knew all about her. However, we go to verse 43. He called unto him his disciples and said unto them, Verily, assuredly, certainly, I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. Now that's a very wonderful thing to say. The question is, is it a commendation? There is a view which has arisen comparatively recently, I think. It's not represented in the long history of reformed commentators and preachers on this passage. It's a new-ish view, and it seems to be represented in a few places, and it says this. This is not a commendation of the widow and her two mites. What this is all about, says this new view, among evangelical people, Bible-believing people, is it is a reflection of the anger of Christ, the righteous indignation of Christ against the false religious system which the Jewish church had become. And in this, we are to see the indignation of the Lord that a poor widow has been so brainwashed that she will put in all her living. Oh, his indignation at the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees for laying the burdens of Christian duty upon people without any light, without any saving light, without any understanding of the proper stewardship of their goods. And here is a poor, superstitious Jewish lady giving her all. Not a condemnation 
just a denunciation of the system. I'm pretty amazed at that view. Everyone who's gone before, it says, has got it wrong. Poor Matthew Henry. Poor Calvin. Poor everyone. Because everyone else in the history of the Christian church thinks that unquestionably, undoubtedly, the Saviour commends the woman. And of course he does. It's inescapable. This poor widow has contributed more than everyone else. But she hasn't. She hasn't. She's put in a tiny fraction of a denarius. They've put in many. A denarius worth today, it's thought, probably in earning terms, about 90 pounds. From their plenty, they've given much. No, says the Saviour. Her fraction of a denarius is worth more. But it isn't. Unless he is commending her sacrificial spirit. Only if it's given out of a sacrificial spirit does it deserve in the mind of Christ, in the values of Christ, to be rated more highly than the vastly greater amounts. It has to be a commendation. It has to be. Now, as soon as you see it as a commendation, it has much richer lessons and much better lessons. If you see it not as a commendation, but simply a denunciation of the rottenness of the clergy of the day and their system, then the only pastoral lesson you can draw from it is this. We must be indignant against false religion. Well, all right, that's a valid lesson. That's a good lesson, but it's the only one you've got. If you see it as a commendation, which it undoubtedly is, then you've got far more application. All her living was the Lord's. She gave it all. She may not have been right to leave herself without sustenance. Perhaps all her living for the day is a fair way to interpret it. That's common. She gave all she had for that day. It was her fast day, perhaps. She made it her fast day. And she gave all. Well, the scripture teaches us we've got to be responsible. You earn so much money. You've got to keep a home. You've got to keep your family. You've got to keep that family properly. You've got expenses. You've got things you've got to purchase. Of course you have. They're all necessary to you. But the lesson of the woman who gave her living and was commended for it is this. I see everything I have and everything I possess and everything I'm paid as the Lord's. 
I see it all as his. I am a steward of it. Now if I think like that, all my substance and my resources belongs to the Lord. How much more careful I will be in the spending of it. I won't buy that super expensive version of whatever I need. I'll buy the more reasonable one. Maybe I won't buy the cheapest because I may legitimately reason that will break down first or wear out first or give way in some manner. But I will be sensible and responsible with all my means. I won't buy that thing or pay for that thing which is just self-indulgent. It's just for me. It's greed. It's an embellishment. It's to be seen. It's to be noticed. It's to make me feel a bit superior or better. It's to signal my station in life or something. Because it's the Lord's money. I'm responsible to him. If we see the commendation to the poor widow as a commendation because she saw everything as his, she would give her, him her entire substance for the day. Then we get that kind of lesson. We ask, how should I be helping the gospel? What should I be stewarding to the Lord? If I see all my substance as his, don't you see? It's wonderful. It helps me not to love money and substance. Are you tempted to love money and possessions? See it as the Lord's. It's his. It will deliver you marvelously from inordinate affection of substance and money and things and gloating over them and keeping them because you must have so much. Yes, you've got to pay for your home, your family, for some measure of security into the future. But be careful. We're given entirely to the Lord. That's the principle of Scripture. Another thing it helps you, if everything is the Lord's, it helps you to avoid the subtle temptation to equate wealth with worth. That's a temptation. Because I'm, why? The upper and middle classes of olden times did this, as they say, big time. It's how they thought. Because I am substantial, I am better than. That was the old class system. You may be tempted that way today because the Lord has provided you with substance. The devil comes and whispers, you won't articulate this, you're better. No, I'm not. I'm a sinful man, sinful woman struggling every day against sin for the Lord, seeking humility 
Dear friends, if it's all the Lord's, I am less inclined to equate worth, wealth with worth. You've got many applications from this principle. Well, our time is up. Sincerity wins. Hypocrisy falls. If only everything you have and all your substance is seen as the Lord's. In this passage, Christ must be recognized, exalted, praised, valued, wondered at. The first step in advance in communion. Self-love must be executed at every thought of it. The second step, the third step, everything we have must be surrendered to him.